bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. If you hear some kind of a, a noise in the background here, like a chirping sound, it's uh, it's not your audio system, so don't try to fix it. I've got a cricket in the studio here. So I had one earlier in the year. Uh, it was big, too. Cricket moved into the studio, and it just uh, chirps away, hides in a <clears throat> kind of a drain thing in the floor. And uh, holy smokes, do those things just chirp and chirp and chirp. And I didn't realize how much they chirped or how annoying they can get, actually, until uh, I had to sleep here in the studio one night. And it was the night Ruger had his surgery uh, to get neutered. I just decided to spend the night because his kennel's here in my studio. He's, he sleeps here, not in the house. And so anyways, that, that cricket was in the studio that night and it chirped all night long. I ended up moving a whole bunch of big stuff and pulling the grate out of the floor and found it and relocated it outside. Um, so that was kind of a conservation success, rewilding uh, this cricket to the great outdoors of my property. Just like that uh, cartoon show from years and years ago, the cat came back. Well, the cricket came back, so um, it's here again. Seems to be pretty quiet right now, but I just saw, it's a funny story. It was uh, chasing around trying to get a bug out of your out of your studio so if if, if he fires up in the middle of this podcast and uh, don't don't uh, worry about it so hey so my lead story here is following up on a story that I've been been covering on the last two episodes in fact the last episode was solely dedicated to <clears throat> this whole issue in Ontario of uh, the dog um, hunting trialing pens um, where the Ontario government was had a public con- consultation period that was open because um, they were considering allowing the licenses for these dog trialing areas to be expanded and for existing licenses to be transferred. There was only, I think, 24 left. The government, uh, previous government in Ontario was trying to phase them out. They're controversial because hunters are allowed to obtain legally trapped coyotes that are live, like taken in live traps, and put them into these large <clears throat> penned enclosure areas. Like they're huge, you know, hundreds of hectares. And these coyotes live inside there. That's like their home. And uh, they have all types of um, uh, bunkers and hiding areas and underground um, tunnels and chambers and all this sort of stuff for the coyotes. They go about doing their their normal business living inside these big enclosure areas. Uh, But then hunters will do um, dog training and trials in these enclosure areas. So, of course, highly controversial with the non-hunting animal rights um, groups saying that, you know, putting wild animals in these penned areas and allowing dogs to chase them uh, was not a humane 
uh, treatment of wildlife. Um, the last episode was uh, we had a hunter on that was had experience of actually hunting coyotes in the wild, which is why they're training the dogs. So if you haven't listened to that one, go back to the last couple episodes um, and you'll get to all the details on this story. I'm just kind of doing a recap <clears throat> of it here. But since the last episode, the Ontario government has approved um, this proposal. So they will now have a period of time where people, hunters can apply, and this is only for private land, to expand or create new um, pen trialing areas or to transfer existing penned areas. So apparently some of these penned areas, the licenses are held by old timers that are done and want out of it and they want to transfer um, their license because up until now nobody could get one. But the previous government prohibited um, those people from transferring the license so now they can. So anyways that's uh, kind of a new development in the story of the Ontario um, dog trialing areas. Still controversial, still stuff showing up in the um, Ontario newspapers uh, for and against this whole idea of training hunting dogs in an enclosure area with live coyotes. So still controversial. Earlier in the springtime I covered a story uh, and even last year I covered this story. It was controversial about the Alaska commercial fishery that was intercepting Chinook salmon that were destined for um, Canadian rivers to spawn. <clears throat> there were uh, accusations that the U.S. Uh, fishing industry was taking more than its sort of agreed upon uh, limits under the Pacific uh, Salmon Agreement. I think it was an international agreement. So earlier this spring, a U.S. judge in Alaska ruled that because the Chinook salmon are food for killer whales, orcas, which are classified as endangered, so they move from like uh, Washington State all the way up past British Columbia into Alaska and back, the U.S. considers those endangered uh, species. This is their primary food, this judge uh, ruled in favor of the killer whales uh, under the endangered um, species legislation in the United States. Well, so that was kind of for conservationists uh, from the whales perspective and from salmon as well. Uh, people were saying like, great, you know, the, the salmon fishery was taking its toll on the Chinook and which was impacting these endangered killer whales. So anyway, since I covered that story, there was some developments in that uh, late last month in June. Uh, a U.S. appeals court halted um, that lower court ruling um, that would have shut down southeast Alaska's commercial Chinook salmon fishery, the troll fishery, this summer. So one court in the U.S. has overruled, like a higher court has overruled a lower court and the commercial Chinook troll fishery is back on in southeast Alaska, intercepting Chinook salmon um, that were would have been running into, like I said, Canadian rivers in the Yukon to, to spawn. And then those fish next year would return to the ocean and feed the endangered killer whales. 
Canada hasn't classified those groups of killer whales uh, as endangered in Canada, but the U.S. has. So big, big change there. Now, speaking of endangered species, so I've covered this story before about the spotted owl in uh, the old growth forest of British Columbia. So there was only one owl, wild owl, a female left living in the wild. And there's a, a rearing facility uh, in British Columbia that's rearing spotted owls. And they released a bunch of them out into this area, hoping to create, you know, a breeding pair in the wild. And the three males, I believe, that were released were all ended up being killed. Other ones that they've released uh, have been vacating the area, the release area, and flying off somewhere else uh, away from where this one lone female is living. So anyways, uh, there was that story. Then in February of this year, Canada's Federal Minister of the Environment uh, made an announcement that he would issue an emergency order to protect 2,500 hectares of critical spotted owl habitat uh, that would uh, prevent logging in that 2,500 hectares, which is around where this remaining uh, female is living in the wild still, as far as I know, um, she's still out there. And the federal minister of environment actually failed to act on that. That was in February. And so as of now, nothing has been done under the Federal Species at Risk Act to protect the spotted owl uh, or the spotted owl's habitat, which is a federally endangered species. So anyways, the Wilderness Committee, which gets sort of like quote-unquote called an environmental group, they're from uh, Lower Mainland area, Vancouver area. So they are taking the federal government to court. Um, they've retained uh, another environmental organization law firm called EcoJustice, who's filed on their behalf in British Columbia courts to take the federal government to court over what the Wilderness Committee says is a failure to enact, enact a protection order meant to safeguard habitat for the last northern spotted owl still living in the wild. So that will be interesting to see what happens. These lawsuits go on all the time down in the U.S. Every decision, um, you know, to do with natural resource development in the U.S. seems to end up in court. And a lot of times uh, the Endangered Species Act in the U.S. is, is sort of the platform for uh, these lawsuits, whether it's a logging thing or a hunting thing or a cattle grazing thing or oil and gas development. Um, just a tremendous amount of litigation down in the U.S. So uh, now we're starting to see it uh, more here in Canada. Now generally, and I think I've covered this in stories before, I don't know if I've ever really seen some strong precedent cases set in Canada where an outside public entity has sued the government over its decision or non-decisions. Generally, that doesn't land very well in the courts in Canada because the uh, person bringing the, the charges forward are not like... Uh, 
they're not vested in the resource. Like they're not a commercial tenure holder. They're not like the commercial fishing industry or a license holder. And that's generally where, at least in my experience, I've seen court rulings ruled in favor because a tenure holder, like a fish farmer, you know, or something like that, or a logging company or, or, you know, a guide outfitter is ruled in favor of because they have a commercial tenure. Uh, I have not seen and probably not saying that there hasn't been uh, or here this is just like a non-profit society uh, I guess representing um, a segment of the people of the province or people of Canada uh, taking the federal government to court over its inaction under the federal species at risk act so this will be pretty interesting to see what happens here now endangered caribou in Ontario talked a little bit about this on other episodes so just recently, um, the federal government, again, Minister of Environment, has established a timeline for Ontario to get its act together to protect the boreal caribou and its habitat in northern Ontario, which has been declared a threatened species since 2003, 20-some 20 some years. So... The federal minister um, said you're going to give the Ontario government until next spring, April of 2024, to demonstrate that it has put a place, put it, a plan in place to protect the boreal caribou in Ontario that would be equivalent to measures taken under the Federal uh, Species at Risk Act, a framework for protection. Um, so heard this story dozens of times covered it where the federal government um, saber rattles you know the provinces saying you better do something to protect these endangered species or we're going to use the big hammer of the species at risk act and draw a big circle around the endangered species habitat and that's it all your resource industries get shut down so we've yet to see that happen in <laughs> Canada uh, has not happened with the uh, endangered caribou in northern British Columbia or northern Alberta and it hasn't happened with endangered caribou in Quebec it didn't happen with um, the Chilcotin and Thompson River steelhead uh, in the Fraser River system in BC it did not happen with the southern resident killer whale herd or numerous depleted uh, salmon stocks in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, none of those stories that I've covered has the federal government stepped in and used the heavy hammer, the safety net of the Federal Species at Risk Act. So I'll probably be covering this story again next spring where uh, that April 2024 date will pass. Um, the Ontario government probably will do something. Conservationists will say it's not enough and maybe we'll see someone take the federal government to court again because they probably won't step in and take habitat away from the authority of the province of Ontario. It's a real problem for conservation in this country. Just the mechanism of the Federal Species at Risk Act was designed to be a safety net for the extinction of species that are under the authority of the provinces. Should something in the provinces fail, the federal government's obligations to the people of Canada is that it could use the federal legislation 
as the safety net when the provinces are failing to do it, to step in, take control, and prevent species from going extinct. And I have just not seen solid, demonstrated evidence that the federal government has been doing this. And I've been covering these very same stories for a couple of years now. And the federal government threatens, but just will not step in and use the Sarah Act on behalf of Canadians. It's definitely a huge failure of the public trust doctrine at the federal level in this country when it comes to conservation of wildlife. So what's a Round Canada podcast episode without a Canada goose story? So um, Canada's uh, favorite bird to love and hate. So the city of Toronto late in June, uh, early in July, has been trucking Canada geese out of the city for the suburbs, uh, the outline, rural areas outside of the greater Toronto area. So they've moved uh, 300 geese in one shot in late June, and I think they were rounding up more and taking them out. So what they do is when the geese molt, when they go through that first molt of the year, uh, they move into the parks and the green belts in Toronto because they need incredibly highly nutritious food when they go through the molting period because they want to they have to regrow basically all their feathers and their flightless during during the molt so that's when they are all over in the parks and they're pooping and eating stuff and you know and people get um, their hate on for Canada geese so in Toronto, they've been apparently doing this for several years. This is the first I've learned about it, but they uh, they they wait till they're in there with the, the brood flocks and they're all flightless and uh, some some uh, goose cowboys uh, round them all up like uh, kind of like human um, uh, shepherd dogs <laughs> around them in these big flocks and herd them into trailer trucks and then they give them a a truck, a truck ride out to uh, local farms and conservation areas outside the greater Toronto area and release them. Then they grow their, this is what I kind of think is funny, is then they complete the molt and they grow their flight feathers back on and they probably just fly right back into the city of Toronto for the rest of the summer because they know where the good groceries are. And then we get more news stories about how horrible the parks are because of the geese pooping on, on the grass. So... Anyways, that's a that's a goose story for uh, it, it's a standing. It's like a, it's like your meetings at work. You gotta have the standing agenda item on the Round Canada podcast is some story about uh, about the ongoing saga of Canada geese in the urban areas throughout cities in Canada. Nunavut Territory has been going through a process over the last sixteen years to try to develop a land use plan for none of it. And finally, after 16 years and four iterations of a land use plan, uh, none of it land use planning commission has completed the land use plan. Everyone at the table has agreed to it. It's been submitted uh, now for government approval. Uh, 129 page document that's being touted as the largest plan of its kind in the world covering one-fifth of the area of Canada Canada's landmass covering one-fifth of Canada's landmass so now the governments of Nunavut the government of Canada and the Nunavut 
Tengavik Incorporation, so the corporation that oversees the Nunavut Land Agreement, all three of those uh, institutions have to approve the land use plan that's been submitted in order for it to become legally binding. So the nuts and bolts of the Nunavut uh, land use plan is there's three land use designations covering all of Nunavut that's not an existing uh, park or protected area. And they have varying limits of conditions that are put on uh, development, primarily mineral exploration and development in Nunavut. Uh, on, um, so, so there's a 15% of Nunavut has been identified as having some sort of conditional use. It allows for mineral exploration and development with some conditions. 19% of Nunavut has very limited ability for mineral exploration and other forms of development, very strict limitations. So these would be areas uh, that would cover caribou calving areas, which the Nunavut people have said a very important, uh, high priority for protection under the land use plan. 65% of Nunavut is, is uh, or of the land use plan, is what they call a mixed land use planning zone. So that's kind of where anything goes, but it's like a project by project uh, referral and assessment, and then conditions would be placed on projects depending on, on where they are in the mixed uh, land use zone. So conservationists and people of none of it have said like, finally, we're here. This is a great thing. Uh, I have seen... Uh, actually coming from uh, an Inuk person who's been working on this land use plan since its beginning for 16 years, has some reservations about the plan because there's a key provision in the plan that says at the end of the day, anything that takes place on the land, whether it's in that mixed, conditional, or limited, strict limitation zones, land use zones, the Inuit people will have the final say on what happens there. And so this uh, person that has been on this land use planning committee didn't want to see that in the final versions of the plan that was submitted to the government because his fear is that you a mining company could come along and propose something in caribou calving areas, which the people want uh, high levels of protection and they might negotiate away the strict limitations and development provisions uh, in the land use plan uh, because they have the final say to veto all, all projects. So this is an Anuk person himself was actually, my interpretation of it is saying, no, the Inuit people shouldn't have had a veto power over what was agreed to in the land use plan. That's kind of uh, maybe my interpretation of what it is. So hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, caribou are pretty important socially, culturally, and economically in uh, in all of northern Canada and, and in Alaska. And caribou calving areas are the, the basis, the platform for those massive caribou herds living in North America's Northland. So hopefully the Nunavut land use plan can have teeth and the right decisions are made for wildlife conservation under this new plan. Five years ago, there was a big project in Banff National Park where they reintroduced 
into the Panther River area into a large enclosure. They introduced, Parks Canada brought in 16 bison, Plains bison. So since that first reintroduction, rewilding project, whatever you want to call it, uh, that herd has grown to over 100 animals. It's been growing at a rate of 33% per year. They, uh, biologists figure with Parks Canada that that's going to level off a little bit um, to maybe growth is expected to be around 20%, which will still see the herd uh, double to uh, about 200 animals in the next eight years. Now, the reason that that herd size is important is this is almost like the Yellowstone National Park scenario in the U.S. is if the bison stay inside Yellowstone National Park, they're fine. If they leave the park, then Montana wants them hunted. And there was last winter a big hunt, uh, like 11 or 1,200 animals were, were shot uh, that left the park way more than what they, I think they wanted. They've done culls inside Yellowstone National Park because the herd has got so big that the scientists have said the habitat can't support them. So they've done culls. They've done um, the big concern with bison leaving the park, of course, is bringing um, diseases like TB to cattle. Um, so they're basically hunted literally like right on the park boundary. So this is kind of the scenario that's now starting to um, bubble up in Banff National Park in Alberta. So if this herd continues to grow and grow, they have a designated area, which was the bison recovery area inside of Banff National Park. So they're now going to have to either keep the bison inside that area. And if their numbers get too big, they got to figure out how to reduce them. Every single plains bison herd in North America that, that they're managing like the, the, the true native genetics of a plains bison, they manage population numbers. Exactly the same scenario as they're held to a geographic area to keep them out of people's hair. Uh, when they get too many, they reduce the herd. So Banff is on the trajectory for that. Now, during the public consultation period for this five-year reintroduction um, program. It was sort of set up as a pilot project. A third of the people that responded in the public consultation period said they supported a planned hunt of the bison to manage its population if and when it gets too large. However, the caveat was that people would support a managed hunt if it was only indigenous hunters going into the national park and hunting those bison. The other option to manage a growing bison herd is to expand the area that's considered the reintroduction area of the Plains bison, which could expand into the province of Alberta outside of the national park, possibly, of which then non-Indigenous hunters are in support of a broader mandate to allow a hunt uh, beyond indigenous hunters only so it's on the trajectory bison are on the trajectory in banff national start park to become a highly politicized uh, species that's being managed potentially being managed by either calls hunts 
a combination of indigenous and licensed hunters or excluding licensed hunters and only indigenous hunters. If they start leaving Banff National Park and they step into the province of Alberta, then the province of Alberta can decide under its provincial regulations what it wants to do with those bison. Again, almost the same scenario as Yellowstone. So pretty crazy. BC is going to have its own Yellowstone here pretty quick in Banff. Maybe that's where Kevin Cosner is going to come up and fire up a new Netflix show or whatever platform it's on. Uh, what are they going to call it? Call it Banff? No, it's not kind of sexy as Yellowstone, but uh, maybe that's why he's exiting the Yellowstone series down in the U.S. is because they're going to come up and film <clears throat> something to do with the bison and Banff. I don't know. I'm just making that up. So sounds cool. Uh, in March of 2022, I'd cover this on some old episodes. Uh, fisheries and oceans in Canada put a moratorium on the mackerel, mackerel fishing industry in Atlantic Canada. And so just recently, uh, fisheries and oceans in Canada, uh, fisheries and oceans Canada, made an announcement that they're extending that closure on the Atlantic mackerel commercial and bait fishing uh, to all of Atlantic Canada, so it's all of the Atlantic provinces, as well as Quebec for the rest of the 2022 um, fishing season. So Fisheries and Oceans Canada said their recent stock assessments found that the Atlantic mackerel had declined even further into the critical conservation zone since the last assessment that was used um, to place the moratorium on mackerel fishing last, last spring. So this is obviously heralded by, decision heralded by the conservation um, community and one that's being railed on by the commercial fishing uh, industry because mackerel, the bait fishing industry, there is a food fishing industry for mackerel as well, but the bait fishing industry is a big part of the commercial um, catch on mackerel, which is no longer uh, allowed to take place because the mackerel are the bait that they're used in the lobster fishing industry because uh, that is more valuable. The lobster are like the highest value um, uh, commercial industry on in the Atlantic uh, provinces. And so the mackerel are the bait for that industry. Now they can't use the mackerel. Uh, they've either got to import it, which is going to drive up the costs of bait for the lobster industry, which is going to reduce uh, profits and profitability in the industry. So the industry is against um, the expansion of or the extension of the uh, mackerel commercial fishing and bait fishing industry uh, for the rest of this year. In the United States, uh, in states like, um, I think like Wyoming, Nevada, New Mexico, they're building a lot of these epic overpasses on the freeways and interstates to allow wildlife to cross back and forth. There's a really cool video on YouTube. I believe it's the state of Nevada produced it on overpasses and like huge structures. The The famous overpa wildlife overpass that's in Banff National Park that you see in every single picture when they talk about overpasses in, in Canada. Like it just, it just, puts that to shame, like the size of some of these things that they build in the U.S., just 
unbelievably um, big, beautiful structures, like miles wide. The mule deer and stuff just migrate over these big freeways like like nothing. Uh, it's not like a, like a little uh, boardwalk over top of the highway. So one of the things that really struck me in that video was they said, like, it's billions of dollars a year in economic damages from wildlife collisions on highways and interstates in the U.S. And as soon as a section of highway in a state where they have more than five collisions, wildlife car collisions, per five-mile stretch per year, it's actually cheaper for the state to build an overpass than it is to do nothing because of the economic losses from those collisions. Five animals in a five-mile stretch is the trigger, the economic threshold to say build an overpass. Here in Canada, we've been struggling and conservationists have been struggling to get transportation sector and stuff to start building more overpasses. Well, <clears throat> one has just been approved in the province of British Columbia, literally just an hour north of where I live up the valley. I've been back and forth through there quite a few times uh, through the town of Radium, uh, at the entrance to Kootenai National Park. Uh, several times going up there uh, hunting this spring. So there's a bighorn sheep herd that lives in the radium area and and the adjacent Kootenai National Park area. And they come right down, cross over the highway, drop down into the Columbia wetlands and stuff for water. And they um, they graze on the, on the uh, west-facing grassy hill slopes and stuff. And <clears throat> radium and Invermere areas are big tourist areas. There's a huge influx of um, weekend cottagers that come out of Alberta and long weekends, lots of traffic. People are in a hurry. They're driving fast. They're passing. And there's a tremendous amount of animals killed on the highway uh, coming and going out of the community of radium. So there's a figure that 10% of the herd, the bighorn sheep herd in the town of Radium is killed every single year. They killed more sheep on the one section of highway called the Five Mile Hill in the town of Radium last year than hunters took an entire, uh, in the entire southeastern part of um, the province of BC last year. Over the last two decades, this herd in Radium has been cut in half from vehicle collisions from about 230 animals to fewer than 120 now. So anyways, uh, provincial government announced that it's going to tender a contract for an overpass and six kilometers of fencing because they, they build the overpass. Then they need that high fenced wildlife fencing to go like miles in each, each side of it. So the animals, you know, have no choice if they want to cross, they got to follow the fence and cross over the overpass. So there's fencing and the overpass are part and parcel of this project. So that is moving forward. Um, that's pretty awesome because the radium uh, sheep herd there was, uh, it was it was destined to blink out. It was on its way out there. The, the rate at which animals were being killed was uh, on the highway far exceeded their ability to, uh, to repopulate themselves. Now an interesting funding partner in this project. So, I've covered stories before about the coal mines that are in the opposite direction of where I live in southern BC that's owned by uh, the mining giant Tech, 
Tech Corporation. They have five big coal mines in the Elk Valley, and there's always a lot of bad press and stuff on social media about the issue of selenium in the Elk River water system that comes from the um, from the mining operations. Whole another story. Did a podcast on it a couple couple years ago. Uh, so, anyways, the the company's always being railed in in uh, the international news and Canadian news and conservation groups are always, you know, the government's turning a blind eye and Tech Corporation is polluting the environment and you know just time to end coal and we don't need coal and all this kind of stuff. So anyways, this company that's so bad for the environment and has this, you know, profit only mindset, which is what everybody is always uh, criticizing the big mining company for $2.5 million to this big horn sheep overpass project. It is nowhere near their mines. It's literally on the other side of the Rocky mountains. It would be, from the nearest mine, which would be the Elkview mine at Sparwood, you're probably looking at three hours driving completely around the Rocky Mountains um, to get to this area where this overpass is going to be built. Um, but but they're willing to help out as a conservation partner because it is in the geographic area of southern BC where they mine and they are willing to put money outside of the valley where the mines are uh, in addition to all the things that they do in the elk valley as well and so they're putting two and a half million dollars i think that's pretty damn cool and i think of all the groups and individuals out there that are always uh harping on tech corporation being this big corporate um, profit only doesn't care about the environment type company if you don't come up with 2.5 million dollars to put towards this overpass you probably need to keep your mouth shut <laughs> in my opinion um, either either put out or shut up like and when it comes to wildlife and keeping them uh, from bouncing off the hood of cars and reducing populations which is a huge problem uh, in BC where I live is uh, Put some money on the table. Stop saying what other people are doing or not doing. Uh, put some money on the table. So anybody that's uh, from one of those groups uh, that doesn't like tech, that's always uh, bashing them, $2.5 million. Put it on the table for the overpass up in Radium. Let me know, and I'll cover the story for you. The Canadian Wildlife Federation just recently here early this summer, gave a prestigious award to the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation, which is a member organization of the federal parent body, Canadian Wildlife Federation. The, 20, the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation was named the 2023 recipient of the Doug Clark Memorial Award, which is given in recognition for an outstanding conservation project that was done in the last year. The project that the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation was given the award for was its first of a kind advancing woman advancing women in conservation summit that was held in 2022 uh, it was the first event of its kind in Canada and it was a space for women to discuss um, all of the areas of conservation environmental work 
um, hunting, conservation, habitat work, all that kind of stuff. And it was a, uh, a women's, uh, only a women's voice in conservation and, um, pretty cool. Congratulations to the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation for, um, for that award. Uh, I see more of these, um, leadership initiatives in hunting and conservation being led by, um, by women's groups and it's fantastic i think they have a tremendous amount of power um, to change the narrative and to change the course of direction especially when it comes to blending hunting values with conservation values together uh, the wild sheep foundation um, is also wild sheep society of bc has a uh, um, sort of a side affiliation uh, that's uh, a women's leadership uh, group as well, women in hunting. So it's cool. It's cool to see that grow. Uh, I absolutely uh, love seeing um, folks step forward, especially women in the field of conservation and hunting, which was always the male-dominated uh, kind of field. We've heard all of those discussions a lot. It's a real thing. I agree. 100% support these uh, women's leadership um, initiatives, stepping into the limelight and taking control. Um, great. Congratulations to the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation for its first-of-a-kind event in Canada. Back onto bison. So not that long ago, around the end of June, June the first few days of July, uh, 15 bison carcasses were found uh, in the Slave River lowlands uh, in the Northwest Territories, dead. They've been, I don't know if it confirmed or highly suspected of dying of anthrax. So that is a pretty wicked disease that is periodically is known to be a fairly common outbreak in bison populations in North America, anthrax. Uh, it can be passed on to humans. The wicked thing about anthrax is it creates spores, which then leave the infected carcasses into, and go into the ground, and they remain viable in the ground, which is how other animals pick them up. Bison come along grazing, they inhale spores, and they ingest um, and, and contract the anthrax, which then grows in them and kills them and perpetuates that, that cycle. So last year, 60 animals in Wood Buffalo, Buffalo National Park in northern Alberta um, died from an anthrax outbreak there. Now they're talking about 15 of them in uh, the Northwest Territories. Anthrax can be transferred to humans um, from direct contact. Uh, it's not like a super common thing, but humans can contract the anthrax, uh, the same one that uh, can get in, into bison, and I believe uh, it's fatal. I don't know if you remember years ago, there was all this controversy. I don't know if it was in Canada, the States. I think it was in the States where like these envelopes are showing up in like um, uh, the legislature offices and stuff with these powders in it and one of the powders that was being found was uh, anthrax spores were just being put in envelopes and they were hoping when somebody's opening an envelope they would open it up poof they would inhale anthrax spores and then it would cause people to die so uh, yeah wicked wicked stuff anthrax 
So the um, government in the Northwest Territories, they've probably already done this. So either they use chemicals, um, probably like heavy industrial bleaches and acids and stuff they pour on the carcasses, uh, or they pile them up and they incinerate them. And the entire area around where the animals were found, they burn the vegetation as well to kill the spores to prevent bison that come along and and graze in that area in the future from from getting uh, uh, contracting anthrax. So the government in um, the Northwest Territories has said that they're advising that residents shouldn't hunt bison in the South Slave region until further notice. So uh, I've reached out to some people that I know in the North uh, that are kind of like keeping their ear to the ground if they find out anything more about this anthrax uh, outbreak. In the Northwest Territories, there are huntable herds of bison in the Yukon as well. Uh, very uh, awesome, sustainable hunts there. They got kids programs and stuff. So my concern initially when I reached out to some people I know is like, hey, have you heard anything or keeping an eye on us? Like, is this something that could spread to the Yukon? So that's, uh, that was kind of one of the first things that came to my mind, uh, as well as where this thing might go outside of the Northwest Territories. Don't know whether it could make its way down to the bison herd in Banff National Park. I don't know if a bison would have to like wander all the way down an infected bison or how far these spores can travel in the atmosphere. Might have to do a little bit of digging and find out a bit more about that. But anyways, uh, big episode, this one, catching up on uh, all kinds of things in conservation science and responsible hunting that's going on around Canada. So there you go. You're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we'll see you in the next episode.